It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The FT. Hello and welcome to an FT special podcast looking at climate change and the IPCC meeting in Stockholm. I'm Clive Cookson, FT science editor, and I'm joined in the FT studio by our environment correspondent, Polita Clark, and by Simon Buckle, policy director at the Grantham Institute for Climate Change at Imperial College London. This week, the IPCC is finalising the first volume of its fifth assessment of how the climate is changing and why. It's the most comprehensive climate change report for six years, and it's due to be made public this Friday. Leaked drafts show that scientists are more certain than ever that humans are causing global warming. The meeting in Stockholm, which involves government officials and scientists, is closed to journalists and the public, so we don't know exactly what's happening. But Simon, you were present at the last such meeting in Paris about six years ago, what do you think's going on in Sweden now? Thank you, Clive. Yes, I was there. I was fortunate enough to be able to attend some of the meeting, although the UK was represented by its officials from the Department for Energy and Climate Change. But I was in the embassy and had the job of obviously reporting back to ministers on the outcome of that. So I attended some of the sessions and then wrote up the final summary with the DEC officials and sent that back as a report to government. So it's a hugely time-consuming process. It goes on over a few days. It's got delegates from all the major countries that have an interest in this, and they're sitting in a conference room discussing line by line this draft, what's called Summary for Policymakers, which is not the scientific part of the IPCC report. It's a distillation of the key messages that governments think are policy-relevant and soundly based, and then they're distilled into this document, and that's the messages to governments. Because you have to remember the IPCC was created by the UN. There was a UN General Assembly uh, resolution back in 88, I think it was. And so the whole work is geared at the policy community. Now, they discuss a draft. So there's a first draft put in front of them by the IPC Secretariat. And then there's games to get your language in. Who wants this phrase weakened or strengthened? Who wants that phrase weakened or strengthened? And some delegations are obviously quite constructive in how they approach this. Some, I would say, without naming names, will be harder to shift from their positions. But at the end of two or three days, they end up with a document that they've all agreed and signed up to line by line. Does the distillation process that you've described, which involves some countries that want the weakest possible language in the policy summary, will it be bland or do you think it will say something quite strong about the way the climate's changing and warming perhaps? The summary for policymakers has to reflect the science. It's not the science, but it has to reflect the science. And so when people argue for very weak statements, the people who've been producing the Working Group 1 reports will point to the evidence base and the other government delegates, perhaps, who want a stronger statement, will also pick out that evidence from the report itself. And so amongst your peers, it becomes harder to defend those unjustified statements. So it really is quite a rigorous process of assessing 
the strength of the scientific evidence through the eyes of the policymakers as well. So we're told by the IPCC that the scientists always have the last word and that there's no way that governments could bully them into changing the language dramatically. Is that your experience from 2007? So what we should distinguish again is the summary for policymakers and the bulk of the report. The scientists will not change the technical summary and the chapters to fit Mm. in with some political whim. What they might do is make adjustments to the wording so that it reads better or it's more consistent with what's agreed in summary for policymakers. But in substantive terms, the scientists won't agree to a weakening of the language or change conclusions because this is based on assessed evidence. Over 9,000 scientific papers have been gone through this time. There have been 200 contributing scientific authors. So if they start changing that, imagine what Mm. a mess they'd get into and the criticism they'd attract from the people who'd actually participated in the process, who know the science very well. But the wording of this document is incredibly important though, isn't it? Because even though the final draft is 31 pages, but it's the one that most people are going to read. It's going to be the most widely read document to emerge from this whole process. So it is incredibly important. You're absolutely right. It's the bit that everybody sees and it's the bit the media stories will run from. And until October next year, in fact, where we have a synthesis report that brings together the climate science that's going to be discussed in this report, the mitigation and the impacts, we, we won't have really another big set piece that brings the climate science to the front. The events in March and April next year are going to focus on impacts from Working Group 2 and mitigation Working Group 3. But this is the key chance to get the messages over to the policy community on what's happening in climate science. And what the evidence says is that, as you say, there's stronger evidence of human effects on the climate system. Climate change has not gone away. The planet is still warming. You can see this in lots of indicators, which we can discuss later. And it's clear we're carrying out a dangerous experiment, if you like, with the planet. And If governments want to limit the risks of climate change, we all need to accelerate our efforts to reduce CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions. Well, let's look at some of the more specific issues. Is the most contentious going to be the so-called pause, which the sceptics have seized on, the fact that 1998 is still the warmest year in the global record so far, and the fact that warming seems to have slowed down over the last decade compared to the 1990s and 80s. Is that going to be the biggest and most controversial issue? It's certainly going to be a very easy subject on which to get people's attention. So I think it's important that we get the facts straight on this. And what some people do is to say global warming has stopped. Look at the last 15 years. The temperature trend is still upwards, but it's very weak. Now, what you've got to realise is that any trend over 15 years is going to be statistically unreliable. So, in fact, that estimate of the trend over the last 15 years also includes values that are negative and values that are even greater than the trend in the preceding 15 years. So there's a huge error margin on that measurement. And you can do this yourself very simply. You can download some data from NASA. You can do a simple regression on it, and it shows you that that's the case. There's just huge error bounds with any trend that you estimate over 15 years. So we can't begin to make decisions on climate change on 15-year trends. If we look 51 to 2012, very clear trend, something like 0.12.13 degrees centigrade per decade, and overall a warming of over, I think, 0.7 of a degree Celsius. Since the beginning of the 20th century, you have a warming of something like 0.89, nearly 0.9 of a degree centigrade since 1901. So that's data, that's incontrovertible. It's been really gone through in fine detail by other groups trying to show it's wrong and actually all they've done is confirmed the validity of those conclusions. 
But we don't even just need to look at temperature, and actually temperature isn't perhaps the most important indicator in many ways. What's happening with climate change is that all this energy, this extra energy that's coming into the system from our greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, largely overwhelmingly is going into the ocean and it's warming the surface ocean and now increasingly the deep ocean and those trends the warming of the ocean we didn't have very good data on until quite recently but if you look on say the u.s government research websites you see very clear evidence that the data shows the oceans are continuing to warm pretty much the same rate sea levels still rising and we're losing huge amounts of ice from the antarctic and greenland ice sheets that's accelerated dramatically since the last period over which it was measured. But this issue of the slowdown in warming, it's the first time I believe that the IPCC has actually addressed it in one of its reports, and obviously it wasn't such a great issue the last time around in 2007, but do you think that it might have been better if scientists had spoken out or addressed this issue more? Because it's very much been seen to be an issue that those who are sceptical about climate change and uh, the human influence on it have captured as their own. And they've used it to suggest that scientists have been keeping it to themselves a little and uh, haven't been willing to address it. It's been very clear from scientific analysis, temperature records, over hundreds, thousands of years, that the climate has always varied a lot. So, in a sense, variability has always been part of the story. If you look in the last assessment report, I remember there's a very clear chart showing how the climate has changed over the last 800,000 years or so, which is basically linked to the Ice Age cycles. Now, over recent times, we've got used to a very constant temperature, you know, the last 10,000 years or so while civilizations developed. But you're right, there can be quite big changes in the climate over time as the solar energy changes, as the composition of the atmosphere changes, as the continents move and so on. Even in a pretty stable period of, say, 100 years, most of that is fairly stable. You've got internal variability. You've got big phenomena like El Nino, Southern Oscillation, which can change the average temperature globally by maybe for a small event, 0.1 of a degree centigrade. But for an event like 1998 that you mentioned earlier, the increase in global average temperature from that event several months later was something like 0.2 or more of a degree centigrade. So that really was an exceptionally warm event, and that's what's biasing this short-term trend. That's right, but I mean, nonetheless, we've seen this debate emerge where some scientists, in fact, are suggesting that the sensitivity of the climate to increased concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere is not really as great as was previously suggested. Perhaps you might like to explain exactly when people talk about climate sensitivity, what exactly are they talking about? So in, in a climate context, what people usually mean by climate sensitivity is how much temperature increase they'll be at equilibrium if we doubled co2 levels in the atmosphere so it's an artificial metric to try and understand how sensitive the climate is to the changes that we're making through fossil fuel burning deforestation and so on now it's ironic in some ways that people are saying 1.5 is a new figure for the lower likely bound of the equilibrium climate sensitivity because actually back in 1979 one of the first estimates of this was by Charney and he gave the range precisely as 1.5 to 4.5 which is effectively what we understand the IPCC report will will say. In AR4 it was slightly higher this lower bound I think was around two degrees but with the same upper bound. Now if you're worried about climate risks actually the lower bound's pretty irrelevant. What we're worried about is whether the climate is going to warm significantly because that's what is most likely to cause economic, social, ecological damage. So the fact that the higher bound hasn't moved actually shouldn't 
really be reassuring, even if the lower bound gives us perhaps more of a chance, maybe, of meeting a two-degree target if we take strong mitigation action. We're still facing those large-scale climate risks from the upper end of the distribution. Has the upper limit gone up? People have been talking about the risk of permafrost melting, releasing vast amounts of CO2 and methane from the Arctic. Have the scientists actually looked at the serious risks of a runaway greenhouse effect? The runaway greenhouse effect is not something that we should consider feasible in the current state of the climate. What we need to do is to imagine continued fossil fuel emissions over the next 60, 70 years, like in some of the scenarios that were run in AR4, the last assessment report, and a bit like the high-end scenario that's now in this AR5 report, the so-called RCP 8.5. That's terrible jargon, I know, but this is a very fossil-intensive scenario that takes us up to over 900 parts million of carbon dioxide by the end of the century. And we could easily get there, actually. There's more than enough carbon in fossil fuels in the ground to get there. And we seem to be on that track at the moment. Now, if we follow that, with the climate sensitivity the IPCC has estimated, they think that it's as likely as not we're going to go above four degrees by the end of the century, and it could be more. And to me, that sounds like a very dangerous risk and one that governments should really react to by accelerating efforts to mitigate our greenhouse gas emissions. What would happen to sea level if that happens? The sea level will continue to rise over centuries, but if we're talking about this century, the very upper end of estimates, I think, by 2100, and this is for the most fossil fuel intensive scenario, would be just shy of a metre of sea level rise for the mean sea level. But there's a range around that for the last decades, and I'm sure the report itself will nuance that with an error bound. But it's going to be less than a metre. And Simon, this is the fifth report of its type that we've seen in the last 25 years, and each one comes out and says effectively that scientists are more and more certain that there is such a thing as climate change and humans are largely a cause of it. And yet we see carbon emissions rising year on year, and in fact this year, as you know, they reached record levels in terms of concentration in the atmosphere. So what effect do you think that this week's IPCC report is actually going to have? Do you think it's going to play any role, for example, in the UN climate negotiations, which are now progressing towards, we're told, some form of international deal to curb emissions in Paris in 2015? The IPCC was set up to inform these major international negotiations. So the importance of their assessment reports is very clear for the international community. The first one influenced the creation of the Framework Convention on Climate Change that is the basis on which these international talks take place. And similarly, this fifth assessment report is coming at a very critical time, both domestically in the UK and internationally. So we have the government wanting to review the fourth carbon budget And I think this confirmation that the scale and pace of changes in the climate system is very worrying is something that they should consider when they're reviewing the commitments which have been made in that fourth carbon budget. So the first challenge is actually getting emissions to peak and then begin to reduce. And I think the talks in 2015 in Paris and all the preparation which is beginning to start now should be geared to finding a way to get governments to work together to at least take that first step. We're not perhaps going to see the most ambitious agreement ever in Paris. I don't expect us immediately to get a credible agreement that's going to commit to 
emissions targets in 2015, even if we did, we saw with the Kyoto that just giving targets and timetables doesn't work. What we need is a mechanism where people feel that they have an incentive because other people are doing things to get an agreement that at least brings the rise in emissions to a halt and gives us a basis for more ambitious action later as and when people are ready and they feel that the evidence is compelling and the technologies are there and cheap enough for them to do these large-scale ambitious things like carbon capture and sequestration or advanced solar technologies. It's difficult though, isn't it? I mean, if that's the sort of deal that we end up with in 2015, it may be fine. I mean, we've seen signs in the US and and even in China recently that there's a certain amount of serious effort that's going to go on in, in terms of trying to curb emissions there. But at the same time, you mentioned this country is looking at reviewing its fourth carbon budget. We've got a new government in Australia, which is looking at repealing a lot of the carbon pricing work that's been done there. And in Europe, in Germany and Spain, we've seen huge pressure on mm. their renewable energy programs. So if we end up in 2015 with a situation where governments are essentially just going to be putting forward commitments and we have to hope for the best, is that going to be enough? No is the answer. I'm sorry if I didn't make it clear enough earlier. I think that this report is critical in underlining the scale of the risks we're running to the Earth's climate. And there is stuff we can do about it. Mitigation will not cost the Earth. Carrying on emitting will. And we really have a chance to begin the process of reducing global emissions. But it can't be done overnight. Energy systems will take a generation to change. And we're going to need some technologies that we haven't yet developed at commercial scale or which are perhaps still very expensive. And so the initial efforts have to be on things like energy efficiency, on some of the renewable technologies that have been proved, but we need to accelerate efforts on research and development and, more importantly, commercial scale deployment of things like CCS, carbon capture and storage, if we're going to get there. And the earlier we do that, the clearer we'll be about what we need to do going forward. If carbon capture and storage works, then burning gas in power stations provided we have carbon capture and storage to take the emissions and bury them underground, will be a viable option going forward. And that then will be much easier for people to make these transitions. If we don't have that option, things are more challenging and we'll need to look at you know large-scale nuclear, other options like that. And we know the difficulties politically in going down that road. I'm afraid that on that note, I'm going to have to wrap it up. Our time is up. There's lots more we could have said, but... Meanwhile, many, many thanks to our guest, Simon Buckle, and my colleague, Polita Clark, and good luck in Stockholm later this week when you go out and report the policy summary. Our producer was John Byrne Murdoch. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.